when wrong is done in our lives, there's a lot of ways that we can respond. There's different ways we can respond when wrong is done to us. There's just a list of things of when wrong is done to me or when wrong is done to you. We have a choice about how to respond to that. Secondly, when wrong is done by us, we have a choice of how to respond to that once we become aware of it or once we know in the moment, though that was that was wrong. I should not have done that. When somebody tells us that you did something wrong, you shouldn't have done that. Uh, we have a choice of how we respond when wrong is done by us, when wrong is done to us. And often you can boil down what those two responses are into either uh, fight or flight. And I've mentioned these before, and I'm sure you've heard of them. Like we can get this stance of like, okay, wrong was done to me, and so I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight against that. Or we'll flight. We'll run away from that situation. Or when somebody points out, hey, you did this thing wrong, or we know we did something wrong, like we could fight in that situation, or we could run away from it. And for me, when a wrong is done to me, I can feel sadness and anger. And if I don't deal with it quickly or in a reasonable amount of time, like resentment can start to build and bitterness can start to build. Uh, and then when there's this wrong done to me, I can want to distance myself from the person. And I typically want to run. I want uh, this flight response. I put up walls and withdraw and get distant um, rather than fighting. But if I'm told I'm, I've done something wrong, my first response is usually to fight, uh, to say, you know, this is why I was right. If you could only understand my reasons, like you would see um, why I was in the right or could get angry and you know we kind of will either kind of shrink or we'll try to get bigger in those moments when somebody tells us you've done this thing wrong and so it's like oh do I want to hide away and get smaller or do I want to get big and no I'm gonna get angry and defend myself um, with uh, bigger emotions if I've done wrong is and no one's talking to me about it um, I'm tempted then to do flight uh, I'm scared okay I did that thing wrong uh, and you know, I know so these people were present and then it's kind of like, I don't really want to see them again. I don't want them to bring it up. I don't want to have to imagine what they're thinking about me. Like, oh, they, they must have noticed and now they're thinking bad things about me. And so it's, I kind of want to withdraw and, and move away um, when I'm scared that I've done something wrong and people have seen it. And so we're going to answer these two questions. What are some poor ways we respond when wrong is done to us? We'll put them on the whiteboard. So just yell them out. What are some poor ways we respond when wrong is done to us by other people? Revenge. Revenge. Silent treatment. Silent treatment. Talk to others about it instead of the person themselves. Mm -hmm. So it could be you know, sometimes like there could be like a healthy way. venting, but often we're like, I just need to vent about this, or we gossip, or we slander, or we um, want other people to join in on our side, or whatever it is. So, yeah, talk to others in a bad way. Mm -hmm. Or wrong way. Because often we have to talk to other people. Can you bring it up to the person that wronged us, but in a negative way? Okay, so we kind of... Uh, we talk to them, but meanly or harshly or passive aggressive, maybe. Yeah, that's a good point. I'll just put talk to them wrongly. Oh, jeez. I always misspell at least one word. <laughs> you guys know what that is. <laughs> yeah. I think. <laughs> we blame. 
blame or excuse or justify. So we blame uh, them or excuse them. So when it's done to us, we can, yeah, we can blame. There could be a blame game there, or maybe we, we could excuse their behavior too. Yeah. And be like, well, you know, it's just, you know, me, or like, you know, they, they're not going to change, or, you know, I know that I caused this. Kind of like a, um, like when victims sometimes say, well, I brought it on myself. Sometimes you give up on that person, right? You're like, they're never going to change, so you can't. Give up on them? Yeah. Well, I try, they're just going to always hurt me. Ignore them. Ignore them? <clears throat> yeah, we might ignore them or try to avoid them. Like, if we're at like a work party or something, like, I'm just going to not talk to them or not acknowledge that they talk to me or just try to hang out with these people. Could yell at them or try to over talk them to try to prove your point to them. Talk over them. Okay, we could probably, I think there's probably some more answers out there, but let's move on to the second question, which is um, what are some wrong ways that, or poor ways we respond when we've done wrong uh, and we are aware of it? Denial. Denial. Not just a river in Egypt, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's appropriate since Joseph's making excuses. Excuses. Avoidance. Maybe it's almost a, a reflection. Maybe. I wonder if it's all, some of them are a lot of the same. I was going to say, could you put stars like Wayne? I was thinking of the stars. Yeah. Here, we'll rewrite Back to other drones. Uh, silent treatment. I guess that's kind of under avoidance. Yeah, what else? So, this is maybe we think something, we've done something wrong, we know it, and so we just stay silent towards that person, try to avoid them, don't talk to them, ignore them, avoid them, maybe. We try to justify? Justify. Hopefully some people might seek out help to understand why they did what they did. Okay, so that'd be a good way. Um, let's focus on poor. Yeah, we're really playing on the negative right now, Larry. <laughs> but that would be a great that would be a great way. That's a good way to respond. So. Well, I missed the first one. Some people might respond violently. That's true. Violently, yeah. This wrong has been done to me, and then or they I've done. There'll be oh, wait, more on the first one. Now I'm getting confused. Oh yeah, just right in this first one. I've done wrong. They could respond violently. It could be a fight Both response. You can respond violently. How dare you accuse me of that, right? Yeah. You shift the blame to the other person. Oh, well, they should just get over this. They should get that shift problem. Shift the blame. Um, yeah, like, yeah, get over it, maybe. Not a big deal. Anticipate revenge. By them, yeah. And that sometimes leads to violence. So we anticipate they're gonna seek vengeance. So that maybe we're like, I'm gonna hit them first before they. Yeah. 
this is where some addictions kick in, where you, you want to forget about it, so you turn to other things to clear your mind. Yeah, you might uh, you feel guilty or shameful, you might try to yeah. numb those feelings or yeah. forget about them. Yeah. Which could be over here, too. Wrongs done to us, it's like, just can't deal with that, feeling that or thinking about it. Yeah. It's a good list, and some of them we said cross-pollinate. Um. This week, as we continue our series in the book of Genesis on the life of Joseph, we're calling it Becoming a Blessing because this is a family chosen. Uh, God chose to bless them, and he wants to bless the world through them. Um, but we see that as we go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and now Joseph and his brothers, there's this journey they all go on of learning. Is Am I going to really trust God? Am I really going to live with his character? Am I really going to do what he says I should be doing and how are they going to be a blessing to the world unless they're willing to fear and trust and worship the very God who wants to bless the world through them. And at age 17, we saw chapter 37 that Joseph had two dreams about how God wants to use him. And we know God has plans for Joseph's family and God has plans for Joseph. But now in chapter 42, 20 years have passed since they had those, he had those two dreams. Thirteen of those years Joseph spent in slavery and in prison. And then seven of those years he spent uh, his second in command of the nation of Egypt. And Pharaoh learns this guy can interpret dreams. He's wise. He's discerning. And Joseph says, God says the future is going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And Joseph lays out this plan. And Pharaoh says, it sounds good. Like, I'm going to appoint you to run this whole thing. And so we've had those seven years of plenty where there's abundance, the crops are coming in well, and Joseph is taking a fifth of that, storing it away so that they would have something uh, that they could use during the seven years of uh, famine. And, but what's going to happen is uh, we get to come back and see Joseph's brothers, and there's going to be some tests that happen actually for like the next three chapters. Um, there's going to be this testing, and we're focusing back on Joseph's brothers rather than fully on Joseph. And the big idea for today uh, is this, how we respond to wrongdoing tests what we believe about God. How we respond to wrongdoing tests what we believe about God. Um, both wrongdoing done uh, to us and wrongdoing done by us. So what we, how we respond to wrongdoing tests what we believe about God. It's only been three chapters since we heard anything about Joseph's brothers. But over those three chapters, 20 years has passed. Uh, and as the chapter about Joseph's rise to power ends in uh, chapter 41, you know, think of you're reading this novel, and it's like in the, in the Lord of the Rings books, there's kind of like two parties that are separated, and they're on different missions, and you're kind of reading one part of the book, and it's focusing on one party, and then the next part of the book is focusing on the other party. And it's sort of like we've been following Joseph, what he's doing, and it's now we're on a, another part of this book where it's like, okay, backing up, let's go up by the brothers and see how things are faring with them. So the camera takes us from Egypt back to Canaan, and the next three chapters, are, like, as I said, are following Joseph's brothers. And we don't know what's been going on with them the last 20 years. We're not told what's going on with them. But the question we should be wondering is, have they changed? Remember in chapter 37, and then even 38, but 37, uh, they're jealous of Joseph. They hate Joseph. Um, they throw him into a pit, 
and they're saying, let's kill him. And then they say, well, let's not kill him because then we don't have to feel like his blood is on our hands. Let's sell him into slavery. And we actually get some profit off of it too. And so they, they you know, sell him into human trafficking. Uh, their 17-year-old brother, they send him off. Uh, and then they go and they tell their dad, they dip his clothes in blood and they say, Joseph must have gotten eaten. And so for 20 years, their dad is believed Joseph is dead. Um, and the brothers have been keeping up this lie um, that he is dead. So have they changed? Or are they the same jealous, hateful brothers who first wanted to kill their brother, decided to sell him to slavery instead, and told their father Joseph was dead? And so the first scene, we're going to do uh, four scenes. It's, we have the brothers in Canaan uh, talking about what to do, then the brothers in Egypt with Joseph, and then we have them on the way back to Canaan, and then we have them in Canaan with their father again. And so if you'll pick up with me in chapter 42, verses 1 through 5, we already read these, uh, so I won't reread them just point out a couple things. In verse 1, you see uh, that there's this, uh, uh, it seems like they're kind of standing around, uh, don't know what's going on. There's a famine that's spread from Egypt all the way up into Canaan. It's a big, huge famine that there's not food growing. There's people are running out of food. And so there seems like they're kind of standing around. Jacob, their dad, says, why are you looking at one another? You know, like, what do we do? There's no food. And he's like, there's grain in Egypt. Go down to Egypt and get the grain. In verse 2, we see it. it's a matter of life and death. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. Like Things are serious. There's no food around. And then verse 4, we see, even though he's saying, okay, I'm going to send you down to Egypt, he keeps one brother with him. And if you remember, Jacob has four wives, uh, and one of his wives was the one that he actually really wanted, and then you know, things got messy, as we saw. Um, but his wife... Uh, Rachel, he had two sons by her, uh, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph, he believes, is dead. The other is Benjamin, and he's like, okay, uh, I don't I don't want to send Benjamin down with you guys. Last time I sent a brother to go check you out, he never came back. He, remember in 37, he sends Joseph, go tell me, go find out what your brothers are doing, and they all come back without Joseph. And he's like, I'm not sending Benjamin down uh, because he's my, the only son left of my favorite wife, and so I'm not sending him down with you. Just you ten go down there. And so you can see that uh, there's still some distrust. Twenty years have passed, but Jacob is still you know, has a suspicion. Like, what did you guys do to Joseph? Like, you looks like you got eaten by this wild animal, but I don't know what's go what happened here. So I don't trust you. And then so that's them in Canaan talking to uh, their dad. And then in verses six through twenty-five. They go down to Egypt, they're standing before Joseph, and they're asking for food. And you see in verse uh, 6, it tells us, Joseph's, the second half of verse 6, it says, And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph, we'll continue reading, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And so if you remember back uh, in chapter 37, verses 5 through 8, you don't have to flip there, but you can mark it in your notes if you like taking notes. Let me just read, you know, picture the scene we just read, and then the dream that happens back in chapter 37, verses 5 through 8. 
Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And now what's happened? I don't know if Joseph had that dream in mind for these past 20 years. I would imagine he was, would be kind of like, well, that's never going to happen. Like, I'm in Egypt now. Like, I'm never going to see my family again. I guess that was kind of a, I, don't know, I must have gotten that wrong. Um, but now he's like, wait, okay, I'm recognizing that these are my brothers. They're bowing down before him, paying him homage because he's the second command of Egypt. They need food from him. And then he's like, I had a dream about this. He remembers his dreams at that moment. And I would imagine that this is certainly different than how Joseph thought it would happen. Of like, was this really? The, that wasn't at all how he imagined it planned out. And I would imagine it's also different than what his brothers thought. Because they're thinking like, well, who are you all high and mighty? You think you're going to stand over me? But now look, they're having to come in humility to ask, like, could we please have food from you? And he remembers his dreams and the future of Abraham's family. Remember, Joseph is part of these 12 brothers whose father is Jacob, whose his father is Isaac, whose his father is Abraham. And now the these guys are the future of this family. God says, I want to take this family. I want to bless you so you can be a blessing. And now the fate of this whole family is in Joseph's hands. Am I going to let these guys starve? Am I going to put them in prison? What am I going to do with them? I've They did horrible things to me. And now they're standing in front of me and I have all this power. What am I going to do? And he remembers his dreams. God said this is going to happen. But what does God want him to do? Why did God put him in this position? I'm standing before these guys. I have this power. What do I do? This is the first, but not the last time, that Joseph's brothers are going to bow down before him. They'll do it three other times um, for different reasons, so uh, keep track of those as we go. But he accuses them of being spies, and they say, No, no, we're honest men. Uh, we're from Canaan. We have a father. Uh, we have another brother, younger brother, and we have a brother, another one, but he's no more. He's, you know, he's dead. Uh, but last, last time Joseph saw them, these guys were anything but honest. Uh, they threw him on a pit, they sold him, and then they told their dad uh, he's dead. And based on what he knows of their character from 20 years ago, it isn't a big leap for him to accuse them of having poor motives here. If these are the same guys that did that to me, like it's not a big leap to believe you guys are spies. You're here for uh, wrong reasons. So in verses 15 to 16, he decides to test them. He says, send one of you. Let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And so he's, they said, we have a younger brother, he's still with our dad. And so he's like, okay, this is how I'm going to test that you're telling the truth. Bring that younger brother down, and that'll verify your words. Um, otherwise, I'm not going to believe you. You say you have this younger brother. And I mean, Joseph has a vested interest here, because remember, this is his full brother. Benjamin is his full brother, the one who's back with his dad. All these guys are his half-brother, only um, related through his father. And then he puts them in custody. I don't know if he wants them to think about it, like, who are you going to send back to go get Benjamin? Put you in custody for three days. Uh, but then he releases them. It seems like he has, uh, he changes the terms of the test. Instead of sending one back, he's like, okay, uh, send everyone back except one. I'm going to keep one of you, you know, I don't know, like, as a 
kind of when you leave your phone or your car keys with somebody that when you test drive another car, it's like you're going to leave one here uh, and you, the other 10 of you go back or the other nine of you go back uh, and bring the other brother down. And plus he's deciding, um, I, he realizes like, okay, if I only send one back, he can't bring enough food back up to feed all the families up there. And so he's like, okay, I got to send nine back. They'll bring food um, and that's going to take care of that situation. Uh, in verses 21 through 22, we hear this conversation that they're having amongst themselves. It says in verse 21, Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So there's, we get a little more uh, detail about what happened back in chapter 37. Apparently, when Joseph, they throw him down in this empty cistern, which is kind of like not a well with a spring, but like it's like a hole that gathers up water. It's empty. They throw him in there, and they're like, what are we going to do? Let's kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. Uh, and apparently, Joseph is saying, it says that they saw the distress of his soul. He begged us, and we did not listen, saying, don't do this, don't do this, please let me out, please don't hurt me. And they said, we didn't, we didn't, we ignored the distress of his soul. And now the distress has come back upon us. And you see them just weighed down with this guilt and feeling, uh, what is going on? Apparently Reuben, if you remember, Reuben uh, tried to save him. He's like, let's not kill him, throw him in the pit first. And then he goes and tries to do something, but then... Before he can come back, they sell him into slavery. So Reuben comes back. What? What happened? And here, apparently, he thinks that uh, Joseph is dead. And Joseph's overhearing this whole conversation. We say he says he he understood them. They thought he couldn't. You know, he's dressed like an Egyptian. He's got his face shaved. He's got Egyptian clothes on. It's been twenty years. I mean, he was seventeen last they saw him, and so hard to recognize him. Looks completely different. Um, and so he's listening in on their conversation. He they think he can't hear. Uh, and he weeps hearing this, uh, maybe remembering it, maybe hearing how they're still thinking about it, or maybe hearing Reuben didn't really want to kill him, was trying to save him, you know, whatever it is, he weeps. And as I said, with them bowing down before him, this is the first time, but not the last time. And this is the first time Joseph weeps, but it's not the last time we're told that he wept. And he does it for different reasons later. But then what ultimately happens is he takes Simeon into custody, <laughs> And he sends them back. But what he does before they leave, he gives them the grain. He takes each of their money sacks that they paid for the grain. He puts it back in their sack. And we may wonder, well, okay, what was the reason for this? He's testing them. Okay, the way I'm going to see that you're honest men, do you really have this younger brother you're, you're talking about? Go get him, bring him back here. Then I'll know that you're honest, that you haven't killed him like you thought you, you know, killed me or gotten rid of him, that you're really telling the truth. And um, then he puts the money back in. Um, was this kindness? Like... Okay, I really want to provide for my family, but I want to do it secretly. Or is this another test? Uh, are they? Is he seeing, like, what are they going to do with this money? Are they going to leave Simeon in Egypt? Okay, well, we'll just fake his death to our dad, like we did with Joseph. And we got a couple sacks of money, just like with Joseph. Um, it's kind of like putting them in the same situation that they had um, before. But they uh, interpret it uh, as God's punishment, as we saw in verses uh, 26 through 28, that when they're, they're on their way back to Canaan, 
this is the, the third scene. So they're in Canaan talking to their dad, then they're in Egypt talking to Joseph. Now they're on their way back to Canaan. They stop at a place. They One person opens their sacks and like, what? My money's still in there. And the, and the words they say at the end of verse 28 are, what is this that God has done to us? And it says just right before that, at this their hearts failed them. They turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? And so they're just dealing with this thing that they did 20 years ago. They're still dealing with it. And every turn, they're like, God is punishing us. What is going on? We, you know, this guy being rough to us in Egypt, God's punishing us. Oh no, the money's in our sack. God's punishing us. And so even if Joseph, Joseph was trying to be kind to them, they still interpret it as, oh no, uh, he didn't, you know, it wasn't him being nice. This, this is God's punishment. And maybe it's a bit uh, of both that Joseph was testing and being kind. But there's th two tests going on here. As I said, our big idea is how we respond to wrongdoing tests what we believe about God. And I see these two things at play, or these two temptations, or, or two things that can weigh us down. One is guilt, and one is vengeance. And the test for the brothers is their character. Have they changed? Are they different from the hateful, jealous, deceptive, murderous brothers from before? And we don't. We really don't know from this chapter. Uh, we're not. Don't see the whole story, and that's why the test continues. We go on. Um, they wrong Joseph. Are they going to make it right? Are they going to act differently than how they acted 20 years ago? And this test includes, if you want to kind of think of it, it's like, okay, Joseph, uh, however long that trip is from Canaan to Egypt, like they got a long time to think about it. They got a long time to think about it back. And there's a, a couple elements that uh, his test creates. Um, one is time. Second is difficulty. Third is temptation. Is that, uh, and a test doesn't have to always include all of these, but it's when we go through these sorts of things that it tests what is in us. You know, things come out like with time. It's like we can put on our best face in a moment. You know, for ten minutes. You know, get, you know they have however long they're before Joseph. Like, oh, we can put on a good show for this time we're in front of Joseph. We can put on a good show for three days in custody. We can show honor and you know act like we like each other or whatever, and that we're honest men. Um, but really time is going to tell and second difficulty like he just put them in a difficult situation are they going to make that trip back to get Simeon uh, are they going to um, bring Benjamin down or what, what are they going to do there's difficulty in this it's a time of famine um, and that brings things out and thirdly there's temptation uh, there's a temptation to leave Simeon there there's a temptation to keep the money for themselves and be like and, and lie to their dad again and so there's time difficulty and temptation and these aren't what always happen when we may feel we're being tested. But these can see, show us what they're like. And we see them reaping what they've sowed. Uh, that they are, uh, they sit in prison like Joseph sat in prison. They have to like kind of talk amongst themselves. Who are we going to leave down here? And ultimately, Simeon gets left down. And it's kind of like, okay, we're in the same situation where a brother's been left in Egypt. And we have this money. What are we going to do here? Are we going to deceive our dad? And it's like they're, uh, and it's, it was interesting when we were going uh, through this in our gospel fluency group, um, studying it on Thursday, because it seemed like we all had a little <laughs> bit different take on, is Joseph like doing the right thing here? Or is he kind of a jerk? Is he kind of like seeking vengeance? Is he kind of paying them back? Or is he doing the right thing here? And I think we, when we look at Joseph and see what he's doing, it's a chest for him too. 
There's a test for the brothers and their character. There's a test for Joseph and his character. And we see a guy who is in turmoil that it seems like he goes back and forth. He's like, I'm going to do this. No, I'm going to do that. He's weeping. He's listening to them. It's like he doesn't, I don't think he quite knows what to do. And I think that's why when you, when I read it, I'm, I kind of, seems like Joseph restrains himself pretty well. Um, but I could also see how you would read it and be like, well, Joseph isn't very nice. Uh, he does some things that um, kind of mean, like, why do you do that to them? And when we think about uh, forgiveness, um, it's like, okay, why doesn't Joseph just forgive them? Reveal himself, forgive them. Uh, and, I th- and as I said, he's wanting to test and see what's in them. Uh, but even if he did forgive them, forgiveness doesn't negate consequences. And it negates punishment that I'm not going to pay you back. I'm not going to try to get this out of you. I'm not going to try to make you um, right this wrong. Um, But you've hurt me. And there's natural consequences to that. Um, Grace doesn't mean that we fully entrust ourselves to someone. Love doesn't mean there's no consequences. If you think about parenting, like if there's no consequences for a child, that wouldn't be loving. So love doesn't negate consequences. Uh, there, there's things that happen uh, because of our actions. And I was thinking about a verse um, where Je- thinking about Jesus, Jesus was full of grace and love. He's a perfect, living, walking display of what love and grace looks like. But we're told that specifically, Jesus, did, there's a group of people, and it says Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. It's like Joseph, in my mind, is not required to be like, Guys, you know, just reveal himself and trust himself to them. Show this is this is me. I want to welcome you. I want you to know I'm your brother. Um, but he, it's the same principle we see with Jesus is that even though Joseph may be full of love or full of grace or be willing to forgive, it's like I don't have to trust and trust myself to them because he's wondering what is in them. Is it still the same stuff in them that was in them uh, 20 years ago, or is it different? And you see, Jesus didn't entrust himself two people when he knew what was in them. So the test for Joseph, as we said, is there's a test for the brothers and a test for Joseph. What is he going to do? And sometimes someone may be highly successful, well-respected, and stable in other aspects, but when they re-engage certain relationships, they go right back to when the pain from that relationship happen. They go right back to being 12 years old or 9 years old or 15 years old again. And in this moment, we're not told, does Joseph go right back to feeling 17 years old? He's this big, important guy. And does he see his brothers in front of him and, and it's just kind of have this gulp in his throat? It's like, you would think like, oh, Joseph, you got nothing to worry about. Like, you're in control. You got these guards. But does he feel small in that moment? Or is there this, like we said, the fight or flight? Does he kind of like withdraw? Or is it like, well, now my time has come. Like, they're before me, and the tables have turned. Now I can um, do as I like with them. And, I, and this interaction would have gone much differently if Joseph didn't fear God. If We've already been told he fears God and is trusting God. We've already seen that he has a strong moral compass, that he doesn't want to sin against the Lord. Even as much as he may want to get revenge, he's like, I'm not going to sin against the Lord. And if you think about it, no one would even know what happened. He'd be like the only one that would know. Like uh, for Jacob, oh, none of the brothers, I just, he just wiped them out. Like he probably wouldn't even have to ask Pharaoh, like you guys are spies. Um, 
take them away, get rid of them. They don't know their brother killed them. Jacob doesn't know their brother killed them. He could have just gotten away with it, but he wouldn't have gotten away with it before God. And we've seen that God's been forming his character. And as we look at the story, we may feel like, well, we need to prove Joseph right. Like, he's the hero of this story. And it's like, well, the hero of this story is God. And so Joseph, even if he's struggling, if he's making mistakes, if he's not doing anything right, God's the hero. Ultimately, Jesus is the perfect picture of how we respond, should respond to wrongdoing. So we think of that big idea, how we respond to wrongdoing, tests what we believe about God. How are these brothers going to respond to the wrong they did to Joseph? We know they're weighed down with guilt, and they haven't come clean. In 20 years, they haven't come clean. They're still keeping up this lie, possibly even with one of their own brothers, Reuben, who was kind of uh, amongst them. And so it's like they're out working, and they're keeping up the lie with Reuben. Um, they're keeping up the lie with their dad. And how, what are they going to do? Are they going to make it right? Are they going to go to God? Are they going to seek forgiveness? And how is Joseph going to respond to the wrongdoing done to him? Is he going to pay it back? Is he going to respond with vengeance? And we see this, these tests. And so we can ask, well, what do we do with our guilt? What do we do with our desire for vengeance? And when we look at the, uh, the cross, when we look at Jesus... We get our answer to both of them. With Jesus, we see the answer to our guilt. We see Jesus taking on the penalty for our wrongdoing. We see our sin dealt with. We see Jesus paying for it himself. And there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when we've done wrong, in that moment, what do we do? Do we run to Jesus? Do we run to God? Do we run to his grace? Or we, do we try to hide or flight, run away from him? Or do we try to defend ourselves to him? And in those moments when we've done wrong, it tests what we believe about God. Do we believe that he's fully paid for it? And we go to Jesus at the cross and we see it's all been dealt with there. And at the cross, in Jesus, we also see the answer to our desire for vengeance. Well, Joseph's brothers did this horrible thing. They should pay for that, right? They shouldn't get off the hook for that. They shouldn't be uh, let go for that. And when we have somebody who's wronged us, we should rightfully think, they should not get off the hook for that. Um, God is a just judge. He cares about justice. He doesn't let people off the hook for things. But the reality is, either that person has turned to Jesus, and their wrong has been paid for by him, or they've not turned to Jesus, and they're going to pay for that wrong themselves one day when they stand before Jesus as their judge. But when we look at the cross, we see this is God's the, the horrible, just judgment on our wrongdoing, on our sin, and when we see that, we can say, okay, God is going to take care of all wrongdoing in the end. And so I don't need to take care of it now. It might mean we need to talk to somebody about it, but it doesn't mean that we have to pay them back and seek vengeance. And we say, God, I leave it in your hands. And you read Psalms where um, people are struggling with these deep pain and horrible things done to them. And then you see them turning it over to God. Even sometimes the things they pray for are shocking. Um, but at least what you see them doing is, them not seeking it out themselves. They're turning over to God. God, would you do something about this? And so we can trust. If they've trusted in Jesus, God has already dealt with it. And so we can say, you know, am I going to pay back vengeance when God isn't going to seek vengeance on them? And Or we can say, if they haven't turned to him, we can pray for that. Or we say, you know what, Jesus is going to take care of this in the end uh, at the judgment. <clears throat> and the, the last verses of this this chapter, they get back uh, to Jacob, and we see them uh, 
uh, talking to their dad and telling him in verses 29 through 34, um, as a summary of those verses, they come, they tell their dad, like, look, this is what happened. You know, this is why our brother isn't with us. This, the Lord of Egypt spoke roughly to us, accused us of being spies. We said we're honest men. We said we have uh, one brother back in Canaan, but our other brother uh, is no more. And they say, we have to bring Benjamin back uh, to prove we're not spies. And then in verse 35, it says, uh, you know, they're going to get their grain. It says, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you bereave me and my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I'll bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to me on the journey you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. And we see that this is a family that is just a mess. There is a relational mess. Jacob, uh, I mean... I'm not a, a therapist or willing to say, like, he just seems clinically depressed, but he seems, like, pretty down. Like, lost my child, Joseph. Now Simeon, well, he's probably gone. You guys say he's, you know, in confinement in Egypt, but uh, I, I don't have any really real reason to believe you guys haven't been very truthful up to this point and I mean, don't seem to have the greatest character. And now you want me to lose Benjamin? He just seems like this super distressed guy and Reuben... You know, the weird offer he makes, it's like, I wouldn't send my kid with him either. Kill my two sons if I don't come back with them. Yeah, I'm not going to entrust one of my sons to you if you're willing to have your two sons killed. And Joseph is just like, you know, this is, this is horrible. And so we see this family that's a mess. And God is at work in this family in complex ways. He's, he's digging up old hurts. He's making them confront the wrongs done to them. He's making them confront the wrongs done, uh, they've done to others. So if you think about your life, do you have a relationship that isn't what you wanted, planned, or expected? Do you have a relationship that isn't what you need it to be? You wish it was different. <laughs> you might be on the Joseph end of that relationship where wrong has been done to you and you're tempted to seek up vengeance. You may be on the brother's end of that relationship where you have done wrong and guilt weighs you down and you try to forget about it and you need to think about making it right. So if you're in the brother's shoes, how are we tempted to deal with the guilt of wrongs we have done. We wrote them up here. So maybe think, so consider, you have a relationship in your life where there's been, where you've done wrong. You're in the shoes of the brothers. And maybe you're ashamed, maybe you feel guilty, maybe you're trying to forget about it. Is there one of these ways you're trying to deal with that? These, remember this is a list of poor ways to respond when we have done wrong to somebody else. Is there one of these that you're doing in that relationship? Give you a couple seconds to think about that. And if you're doing that, your life may look like the brothers. They're living a lie and they know it. They know they've done something wrong. They've kept this lie of what happened to Joseph going for 20 years. It's eating away at them. They're filled with anxiety. They're seeing everything as God's punishment against them, everything that goes wrong. Their consciences aren't clear. And so if you feel like 
man, I'm just weighed down. I have all this anxiety. Uh, I don't even know where it comes from. It could possibly be from a relationship that is broken where you did something in it and need to make it right. Or maybe you're actively trying to push that down or avoid their doing these things. Um, and what we do is we take, go to the cross and we say, Jesus, you've forgiven me for this. And that can release us to be unfearful before the one who matters most. We can say, you love me, accept me, so I can go before someone I've wronged. Or you might be in Joseph's shoes. And how are we tempted to deal with the wrongs done to us? We might do these sorts of things. We might be doing, you know, have the same dilemma that Joseph had. Or we might be acting out. We might be ignoring the person or uh, talking to them wrongly or talking to others wrongly or giving the silent treatment or revenge, avoiding it. Is there someone in your life who's done wrong to you and you're reacting in one of these ways to them? might feel like you're in turmoil like Joseph it's like there's this relationship in front of me and I've been wronged and you're like I don't really know what to do and then again we go to the cross we find forgiveness for ourselves um, and we find the freedom uh, to talk to them or offer forgiveness if they need it and God chose Abraham and, and his family knowing the brokenness and mess that they would be and this family is a mess, and as Nate said a couple weeks ago, there's this chaos of sin of what is going on here. But God is faithful, and He's gonna. We're gonna see how He uses all of this. And as the family of God, um, we too might feel like a mess. Maybe you feel like, man, uh, I have some relationships that are are messy um, in my life, um, and we might feel like sometimes we get on each other's nerves, or like, oh, I need patience for this person, and we can be. A mess as well as the family of God. And call, God calls us to be a family that deals with wrongdoing differently than the world. These are not the ways that God calls us to deal with wrongdoing. God calls us to deal with wrongdoing differently than this. Of looking to him, saying like, God, I trust you to you know, bring about judgment. Like, that's not my job. And God, I also look to you for forgiveness to take guilt away from me in a family of people that are willing to uh, confront one another's wrongs and not say, you know, I'm just done with you, or to talk badly about one another. Jesus, uh, we're told in the Bible that the way we relate to each other reveals what God is like to the world, that it's a reflection of what God is like. Because God, we're told, Jesus is like, does God only make the rain fall on the righteous? No. He takes care of everybody, the righteous, the evil, the bad, the good, and everybody in between. And that doesn't mean that everyone's forgiven and going to heaven, but God is like, oh, I act generously and love people. And so how do we respond when somebody's wronged us, when wrong's been done to us? And what, how do we respond when we know we've done wrong to somebody else? Those things um, reveal what God is like to the world. The way we deal with wrongs done by us or wrongs done to us reveals what God is like to the world. And there's this, this book that I haven't read uh, but the title is stuck with me, so I guess I've read enough of it. I read the title, so I'm going to share it with you. It's called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And this family is just a mess, and God is working in it. And as a church, we may feel like, man, I've got mess all over the place. And it's like, it's a mess worth making as we uh, seek to help one another and love one another and, and push into things when they don't go right. And think about like a, a relationship 
um, that's not right. Like we're the body of Christ. And like if you get a knot in your body, it's like kind of like makes you can't move your neck right. And it's like you feel kind of this pain and affects other parts. And it's like if we, if, if our whole body as a church, if there's like this relationship that isn't right, it's like a knot in the body of Christ. And it makes us so we're not free, so we're not as flexible, so we can't turn as well. So we have this, this pain and we can all feel it. And so as we work through uh, relationships one another and we lean into a mess worth making and even as we as a church if it's like okay I feel good with everybody here but I've got some relationships in my family and my workplace it's like we can lean on this community to deal with our relationships elsewhere because the way we relate to one another and to others um, shows the world what we believe about God and it's a how we respond to wrongdoing tests what we believe about God let's pray Father, we are thankful that you have forgiven us. You offer us forgiveness when we trust in you, that you make us white as snow, that you clear our slate, that there's no hostility between us, but only peace. Would you help us as a people to practice that, to not let hostility or resentment or anger or bitterness grow in our body, but to deal with it, to give the forgiveness that you give to us. Would you help us as a community support one another to heal relationships we have broken outside of our church, uh, to trust you to be the one who deals ultimately with wrongs, uh, and to also forgive as you've forgiven us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Lord's Supper, we're given a picture of what it cost, um, of how... Jesus paid for the wrong in our relationship with God. It was wrong done to God that God himself paid for to make the relationship, to heal a relationship. And that's what forgiveness is. It's the wronged person paying the debt of the wrongdoer. And we see that Jesus bore in his body our sin. His blood was poured out for forgiveness. And we thought about um, some ways, um, maybe you didn't come with a specific relationship um, but if we did, um, let's take some time to finally confess how we've not dealt with wrongs in a way that uh, reflects God's character. Or if you just feel like, man, I just struggle with these things in general, just take some time to silently confess that before God. Father, we bring our, our wrongdoings for you, trust you for forgiveness. We also bring our desires for vengeance at times before you and how we well, maybe gossip or um, vent about a person in a wrong way or seek to pay them back or give them the same wrong they've done to us or silent treatment. We just bring that and confess it to you and receive your forgiveness for it. We trust you to be the ultimate one to work out justice in the world. Thank you for making us white as snow. And would you change our hearts to be people who reflect your generosity and grace to one another and to the world. And um, thank you for that we can come before you without 
hostility and with no barriers because of what Jesus did. Amen. So in the name we pray. Amen.